This morning, I'm very, very thrilled and pleased and honored to have as my guest Adam Grant, who's an author and professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, author of the most well-known and very famous book, Give and Take, among others. Um, Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Adam, let me start by asking you, even though I know you're extremely well-known in your field, how do you describe when you're telling somebody what it is you do or what it is you study? How do you describe it? (laughs) I have no idea. Maybe you can help me figure this out. Uh, I think probably the the most straightforward description is I'm an organizational psychologist. So I guess that's like the, I mean, that's my training and it brings together all the different hats that I wear from writer to speaker to consultant to researcher. And uh, I'm really interested in trying to make work better. Now tell me, obviously I know the basic premise of give and take. I know that was your seminal work. Tell me a little bit about how you came about to discover the whole theory or what made you even interested in looking at aspects of things like, you know, whether people are givers or takers. I mean, how did that even come about? Well, I think one of the the key moments for me was I started my career working in advertising and I was uh, I was actually still in college. My first real job was doing advertising sales for a, a series of travel books. And I remember having to call up these clients and try to convince them to increase their advertising packages. And I was so interested in, in making sure that their small businesses could succeed that I ended up giving these huge discounts and I gave some refunds from the previous year, making me the only person, I think in company history, who ever lost money that was on the books already from a year ago. <laughs> and you know, I, I guess I, I was interested in being helpful, but... I had failed to align, you know, my desire to help with the goals of my organization. And after, you know, trying to sort of <laughs> combine generosity and success, uh, I got really curious about how to put those two things together and was inspired by some people that I, I thought were remarkably accomplished, but also just surprisingly giving and wanted to know more about how they managed to do it. Hmm. So and how did you go about kind of researching this or even quantifying in a way? Like, how did you go about just kind of studying this, 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 this problem or puzzle? Well, that, that part was actually um, pretty well handed to me by a bunch of social scientists who, as I, you know, I started reading through academic research, I, I was struck that in several different lines of work, these same sort of categories kept coming up. So when you looked at personal relationships, uh, you saw that you know, some people tended to, to treat friendships and even marriages as relationships where they were just supposed to give as much as possible. And others were much more interested in keeping score and making sure that that everything was even, which is, you know, basically a style that I came to call being a matcher. Mm. And then, you know, looking at these these behaviors in the workplace, almost the exact same categories had come up. Only in addition to you know people who are very benevolent and like to to give more than they got, and and people who are, you know, matching by trading equally, there were there was this other group of takers who said, I always want to come out ahead. Mm. And so I, I really was building on on these bodies of research, trying to draw the the different strands together, and then started surveying people on on their own preferred styles, getting them rated by their supervisors and their coworkers, and then actually tracking their day to day behavior and beginning to connect that to data on success. Hmm. Now, when you first started studying this problem, was the results that you got or that you discovered consistent with what you observed? empirically when you were doing advertising or was the results actually quite surprising to you? 
You know, I went in sort of thinking that that it was good to be a giver if you were extremely experienced and talented at your job. And it was dangerous if, you know, you weren't off the charts in intelligence and competence. Uh, and I, I kind of thought that, that that was why I had failed trying to be a giver was I had, you know, I basically I didn't know what I was doing. And I wasn't, you know, appropriately skilled or trained for the job. And the data actually didn't support that explanation at all. So when I controlled for talent, intelligence, expertise, uh, it actually had nothing to do with with whether givers were successful or failed relative to to takers and matchers. Um, and that was true across sales, engineering, medicine, a bunch of different fields. It, it was actually the case that the givers were overrepresented on both extremes of success. So they tended to make up the, the worst performers and the best performers disproportionately. Um, but it wasn't about talent or ability. It was about strategy. It was about did they actually figure out how to make smart decisions about who you help, how you help, when you help, and align their ambitions with their desires to you know, to serve the interests of others. Now, what's the reason that you decided to go into this field as an academic endeavor as opposed to taking all this great information you learned and going back into business and using it to be, as a secret weapon for yourself? <laughs> I'm not sure I realized that was an option at the time. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, honestly, by by the time that you know, I, I put all the data together, I was well down the the path toward publishing my research and and getting tenure. But you know, what what really hooked me in in this career field was reading a ton of research that I thought could be really relevant to people's lives, and wondering why it was collecting dust in academic journals and instead of being available you know, accessibly to people. And having a few professors who really changed the way that I saw the world and, and wanted to pay that forward as much as possible. So I love teaching. I'm just fascinated by research. And I can't imagine those not being part of my job. Hmm. So when you when you talk to people, I mean, when you first started um, <clears throat> talking about this give and take or when the book first came out, you know, obviously it resonated really, really well. Um, why do you think that is? Was it because it was something that people had never thought about or was it something more like, wow, that's consistent with my experience? I mean, why do you think it, it resonated so well with people? Uh, I, th I think there was a there was a range of reasons. So <laughs> there, were, there were some people, you know, who definitely came out and said, yeah, I I'd really never thought about this. Yeah, you know, this as a style, right? Like I know I have moments where you know I'm more generous, and maybe some moments where I, you know I'm more concerned with fairness or protecting my own interests. Um, but I didn't realize that you know as I add up all my interactions, I have a default, and that people actually differ in you know in what their preference is you know, based on their values. Mm. But for other people, I, I think what was so interesting is. The number of people that have have come to me, and yeah, I've, I've had lots of different versions of this conversation, but the the standard one is, oh, that's that's not new. My grandmother told me when I was six, they're givers and takers, and you know, my reaction to that is, well, yeah, they're givers and takers, but most of us aren't on one extreme or the other. Most of us, professionally at least, are matchers. We're playing it safe, and we're saying, look, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And that's what most people do because they believe it's it's the way to protect themselves. And yet it doesn't turn out to be the most effective way to live your professional life. And so I think people found that really interesting that um, the common belief about the, the safest way to manage interactions isn't ultimately the most productive one. Hmm. Now, I know you were one of the youngest professors at, at Wharton or one of the youngest tenured professors, I forget. But when you first came up with this idea, did the fact that you were so young or your youth was that an impediment to your credibility? Do people think, oh, how would you know you're, you know, you haven't been in business for 30 years and all that? Was that an issue at all? 
I definitely got some of that feedback and, you know, it, it helped that I had spent you know a couple of years working myself and eventually running a, an advertising team where I had to do hiring and motivation and, and manage a multi-million dollar budget. And I, you know, I that, that helped a little bit, but I, I definitely ran into those reactions. And one of my, my favorite ones, uh, although it was not a favorite at the time was when I, I went to teach uh, colonels and generals in the U S air force. And I was supposed to spend four hours with them on leadership and I got my valuations back afterward, and there were comments like, more knowledge in the audience than on the podium. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, a bunch of people saying, look, you know, you, you, you can't teach us about leadership. We've spent a quarter century leading. What, what do you, you know? You're not even, you're barely a quarter century old. <laughs> and, you know, I, at, at first, you know, I, I recoiled and just said, you know, maybe I do need to go and, and gain a lot more experience. You know, even if I'm not going to work full time, I can do more consulting. And and yeah, I started getting more consulting experience under my belt. But yeah, you know, as as I thought about this more, I really think experience is overrated as as a base of knowledge, because you know, after all, there are tons of things we have a lot of experience on and yet are not experts on. Right? Like we all own brains, but we're not neuroscientists. Uh, we all drive cars, but that doesn't make us mechanics. Mm. Um, we all obey the laws of gravity, but we're definitely not physicists <laughs> on the basis of that. And so, you know, I think that that very often experience leads us astray, right? Mm. We we have some some idiosyncratic interactions, and then we draw conclusions from them. And when I think of the the kind of data that that you know my field is all about gathering, all we're doing is we're trying to accumulate lots of people's experiences instead of just one or two people's. And, you know, wouldn't you rather learn from 10,000 data points than your own? <laughs> I would. Right. So tell me a little bit about, <clears throat> since the Give and Take book, um, tell me a little bit about how your research has evolved and kind of where you're taking things now. Well, so after, um, after Give and Take, one of the biggest questions I got was, how do I change a culture of takers into a culture of givers? And, you know, how do I, when I have an idea for improving my organization, uh, you know, I think it's going to help other people don't listen to it. What do I do? And that sort of tied into some research I'd been doing on on employee proactivity and and voice, you know, looking at how do people speak up effectively and champion new ideas and how do leaders fight groupthink and create an open, psychologically safe environment. And so I, I wrote my second book, Originals, on, on really trying to address those questions of, you know, what, what do you do after you have an idea? You know, we, we know a lot about how to be creative, uh, but once, once you have the idea, you know, how do you know if it's any good and how do you build a coalition of allies and supporters? And if you're a leader, how do you create an environment that sustains diversity of thought? And so that's, that's been a big focus of my research since then. And um, lately, I've been doing more work on resilience and uh, have a new book coming out with Sheryl Sandberg in a couple months called Option B, where we look at how to face adversity with strength. Hmm. Now, tell me a little bit about how you divide your time between obviously you're a professor at a, at a, at a university, a business school. You obviously do a lot of public speaking. Um, you an author. You do research. How do you kind of divide up the time between all those activities? Does it kind of evenly or do you focus more on one than the other? Or tell me a little bit about that. It's a little bit staggered. So one of the things that I was struck by early on in, in my training as a psychologist is we are just, as human beings, we're terrible at parallel processing, right? And anybody who's ever tried to have a decent cell phone conversation while driving a car is, is well aware of that. Mm. And so what I've tried to do is I've tried to organize my different roles much more in terms of serial processing, where August through December is where I do all my teaching. 
And during that window, I don't get as much done on, you know, on research. I don't do as much speaking or consulting. And then January through July is really the, the time period where I focus on all those other roles. And I try to set aside at least two days a week to work on writing, ideas, research, uh, and then you know, sort of work the other activities around that. Which do you – I mean tell me a little bit about how you like each of those activities. I mean do you, do you like the public speaking more than the writing or you like the research more? I mean what, give me a little bit of feel for how those activities uh, you know, interest you and how much you like them. It's like choosing a favorite child. <laughs> I, I really, I mean, honestly, I, you know, my, my first love was teaching. There's, there's something about sharing knowledge, um, and you know, the, the impact of, of opening, you know, other people's eyes to, to things that they might've experienced, but not fully understood, or, you know, in, in some cases challenging, you know, the, the assumptions that they bring to the table about something that really matters to, you know, to their work or, you know, even beyond their work to their lives more generally. Um, I, I find that really meaningful and, it's, you know, it'd be hard to say there's anything that I love more than teaching, but you know, when, when December rolls around, I'm itching to get started on some new research projects that I've been cooking up over the past few months and to have more time to write and, and share some ideas you know, outside of the university. And so, you know, I think this, this toggling back and forth, uh, gives me the right balance where, um, I, I love each of these roles and I get a chance to work on each of them in sort of different time periods. Mm. Now, even though you've been studying this give and take thing a lot, and I'm sure you understand a lot about givers and takers and the psychology and the nuances, do you feel like you're actually still learning about that at this point? Or at this point, you kind of feel like you've pretty much understood at least that segment or that issue pretty well? I feel like almost every time I think I've understand, uh, excuse me, understood it, there are new questions that make me realize every answer leads to three or four new questions. Mm. And yeah, you know, one of the one of the big questions that came out. You know, I spent a decade of my career studying you know, givers and takers, and wrote a whole book on the topic. Published a lot of articles, gave a bunch of speeches, and you know, one day somebody asked me, "Well, you know, what, what what do I do if you know you always tell us to screen takers out of our organization and not hire really selfish people and avoid you know, having them on your team? What what do I do if it's my boss, or if I'm stuck working with one of those people and I can't just?" fire them. And yeah, I realized there's remarkably little research on when, when people have a history or a reputation of, of selfish behavior, how do you deal with them effectively and how do you raise their self-awareness and motivate them to change? And so that would be an example of, of one of the, the many new things I'm excited to learn more about. Now, it sounds like you obviously love what you do. Um, are there any other sort of out, things outside of what you're doing now that you hope to do? You're obviously very young. You've got a long career ahead of you. But could you see yourself, I don't know, you know, going into business? Or is, is there anything else that kind of is out there that you would still like to try to do other than, you know, obviously what you're doing now? It's hard to say at this stage. Um, you know, I think that what what I find myself gravitating to is you know, the the places where I feel like I can I can have the biggest impact um, that sort of tap into my unique expertise. And so I feel like the, the different hats that I'm wearing right now align pretty well with, with what I enjoy and what I seem to be at least halfway decent at. And I haven't yet figured out something that I'm more excited about than, than anything currently on the table, but I, I've learned to never say never on that. Well, Adam, it's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time. I know you're super busy. When your new book comes out with Sheryl Sandberg, I'd love for you to come back and tell me about it. I will try not to make you regret that kind offer. <laughs> All right. Very good. This is Richard Shu and Adam Grant. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.